0: Greetings and welcome. My name is Bradley Wink, and I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning in for this all-new episode of On What Brings You In. Today, we're going to be discussing postpartum depression, what it is, the symptoms that can arise, and what to do if you, your partner, or a loved one is suffering. We're also going to listen to two different firsthand accounts of postpartum depression from some extraordinary women who have agreed to come on the show. This episode is titled, Let's Focus on Mama. As always, before we get started, the views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of those individuals involved and by no means represent absolute facts. Opinions expressed by the host and guest can change at any time. At time, this podcast may cover sensitive topics and we ask you refrain from listening if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, the producer, the host, nor the guest shall at any time be liable for the content covered, causing offense, distress, or any other reaction. I am not a licensed mental health counselor, and this podcast should not be used to substitute for actual mental health support. The first thing I want to say when we start discussing postpartum depression is how it is so much more common than what we think. Postpartum does not discriminate, and it definitely does not matter who you are where you come from, or what your situation is, it can impact anyone. To any mothers who are out there right now listening, I hope you know, first and foremost, you are beautiful, you are strong, and you are deserving of a long and loving relationship with your baby, your family, your body, and most importantly, with yourself. I am elated today to have Angela Fout joining me. She is a dear friend of mine. We go all the way back to childhood. We both graduated from New Regal High School and during our time there we were active members in our show choir. I should know Angela is an amazing vocalist and we uh, just have so many wonderful memories together. I'm so glad that it worked out that you could be on the show because you just so happened to be in Florida while we are beginning the recording for this second season. After graduating, Angela went on to continue her education at Bowling Green State University, where she received her BSN, and she now works at a hospital as a nursing supervisor. She married her husband, Andrew. She now has two beautiful boys at home, Otto and Ollie. I also would note, Ange has a side photography business in Ohio called Little Lake Photography in Indian Lake, Ohio, where she resides with her family. Angela, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much. That was a great intro. Thank
0: you. I try. (laughs) We always do. And if you are a continued listener, you may remember Erica Jane Delquist, LMHC, who joined me for one of my very first episodes on the season titled, Let's Talk About It with a Counselor. E.J. is the owner and operator of Creative Counseling Solutions in Palm Harbor, but recently she has been expanding her work in the mental health field. So even though she's booked with clients, E.J. is available for group trainings and seminars. So if you want to reach out for any mental health support there, you can reach her at LLC.com. I am so excited to have E.J. back on the show. Her episode was one of the most popular from the first season and very likely because of her nurturing and caring demeanor. I had a lot of feedback from listeners who said they felt like they could relate to EJ. And in fact, Angela was one of those listeners. So I thought it'd be really cool to bring us all together and be able to have this this discussion. So thanks for being here, EJ
2: thank you yeah that's great and I have all the good the good feels from that intro <laughs> well, there we yeah, go yeah yeah I love
0: it so I should mention too before we get into everything you know Angela and EJ uh, have not met um, they both have disclosed some of their own struggles with postpartum and as I was designing this episode I just felt this was like I said a really good click for all of us to have because I know you both have some really good insight to share I should note EJ is not here to counsel Angela but to discuss the similarities and the differences between both of their experiences and to give some Clinical insight for any listeners who might be going through some of their own struggles. So, before we get to your stories, I think it's important for us to just quickly discuss what postpartum depression is. So, I would say the textbook definition would say depression suffered by a mother following childbirth, typically arising from the combination of hormonal changes psychological adjustments to motherhood and fatigue. And often the textbook answer would also say that postpartum actually usually occurs or typically occurs within the first six weeks after delivery. But there are studies that are showing that the symptoms and the complications from postpartum can occur well after childbirth has, has occurred. So that's just kind of a base listener or a base for us to start from. I know, like I said, I'm a male here who can't go through what you guys have both been through and I, uh, Plan on just really getting some good some good feedback from the two of you. So I'm going to go ahead and open it up, um, Angela. If you want to tell us a little bit about a little bit about who you are beyond the intro and just your experience with the the postpartum.
1: Sure. Um, so like Brad said, I have two adorable, hilarious little boys at home. They are three and five right now. Um, postpartum affected me most with my first. Okay. Um, I we tried to get pregnant for about a year before I got pregnant with Otto. Um, and he was a very hoped for and longed for little boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know Andy really wanted a little boy and I was so excited to be pregnant and I did not think that I would have any trouble when it became when it came to becoming a mother. So when I had Otto, it it was a huge shock when it wasn't all that I thought it was going to be. Right. I had an emergency C-section, so I didn't get that moment that is so glorified where they, they lay the baby on your chest and you immediately have this huge connection. hmm I was strapped to a table and they brought him around to the side of my head and I could barely see him and I didn't feel this huge connection with him and even after I recovered I was holding him and he was he was cute and I <laughs> I I sure loved him but I didn't feel like this overwhelming connection that you hear about Well, we got home and Otto cried a lot. Uh, he was a very colicky baby and he didn't sleep very well, and I struggled. He had an undiagnosed dairy intolerance, so we were kind of just working through this screaming. We tried everything, we didn't know what was wrong, but he was just always uncomfortable. And we would do those late drives at night trying to get him to sleep, and we were just exhausted. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It was about three weeks after we had brought him home, Andy had gone back to work, and I was truly, truly struggling. And I hid this very well. I didn't tell anybody that I was struggling. But I was to the point where I was so fatigued, I started having very, very intrusive thoughts and thoughts about myself, thoughts about my baby like I and then I would feel shame for those thoughts. And I didn't want to tell anybody I didn't want to talk about it. uh, but I was in a very dark place um. I think what made it a lot worse, too, was that I didn't see an accurate depiction of what I was feeling anywhere. My older – younger sister, sorry, had just had a baby three months prior to me, and her baby was happy all the time. She seemed so happy and just, like, relishing in motherhood. And I did not feel that way at all. I felt like it was an uphill battle every single day. And I remember somebody telling me that it, it would get better after six weeks. That was like the the mark that they said. Six weeks. And he'll stop crying and he'll start sleeping. And I remember looking at the calendar and thinking, I don't know if I can make it that long. It it just seemed so far away. Daunting. So I think that really not having – I thought I was so alone. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I, this wasn't normalized, at least not around me. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't feel like I could reach out. Well, finally I went to – I think it was a four-week appointment at my OBGYN, and they give me this paper to fill out, and it's a postpartum depression scale. And I'm answering these questions, and I'm trying to be as truthful as possible. And I remember handing that paper to my OBGYN and thinking, okay, this is my ticket out. She's going to see how much I'm struggling. She is going to help me. And then she didn't even look at the paper. She just put it in her file. We start chatting and she said, "How are things going?" And I'm like, "They're really hard." And she said, "Oh yeah, like newborn stage is really hard." And just starts going into her experience with her babies. And I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel heard. And I thought, "Well, maybe she'll maybe she'll look at the paper after I leave and then she'll reach out to me." And that never happened but i didn't feel like i could outright say i'm struggling i didn't want to verbalize these things i didn't want to tell anyone these intrusive thoughts i were having i was having because i was an emergency department nurse i thought i was going to be end up in that psych room where they take all of your belongings mm-hmm. they they put a security guard outside your door i'd seen it so many times and i was terrified Right. that that was going to happen because as scary as these thoughts were having the, as scary as these thoughts were that I was having I also I didn't want to be away from my baby I didn't I didn't want to leave my baby but I wanted to leave my, uh, but I wanted to leave my baby does that make any sense it does <laughs> yeah, to get
0: your to, to feel better to get better that's a yes. good mother that's yeah. being a good mother you have to be the best version of yourself in order to take care of somebody else and that's and to not have the support i can only imagine i feel so bad that that was i'm like call me <laughs> but i know, I know but, but, but even I know it's, even
1: my mother in law right. who lived you know 5 minutes away from us she didn't know how much i was struggling right and right. i i could have called my mom she would have been there in an hour mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. would have stayed with me and mm-hmm. she would have done whatever she had to do to make it better but right. i didn't feel like i could reach out like that and i think it was mostly stemmed from the shame that i was feeling because of the way i felt
0: that's exactly what it was and i and Ange, thank you for opening up and sharing like I said, I know there's got to be another mother who can relate to what you went through, and who knows and and did you just a little bit about kind of where you, how you overcame that essentially? Sure. Like, wh- where did you go from there?
1: So, a lot of it stemmed from just my baby coming out of that screamy phase. Uh-huh. Uh huh. We diagnosed his dairy intolerance, which, um. Made him a happier baby. He started sleeping. And then I felt like the fog was finally lifting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't so fatigued. I was able to think straight. And I never ended up seeking help. Mm -hmm. I probably still could have used it. but (laughs) But I think just finally getting over that newborn hump was the thing that brought me out of it, thankfully.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, And luckily, I didn't have it as bad with my second baby. I think I learned a lot more after I was – when I was pregnant with my second, I actually overheard a conversation between two nurses, and they were just openly talking about their postpartum depression. And I was like, oh, this is actually a thing. This is normal, it isn't just that, you know, end-all, be-all moment when you're in the psych room and you're having to get to that point. It's mm-hmm. actually something that norm like routinely happens, even if it doesn't happen to everybody.
0: Right. And it'll happen to people in different ways. It's always subjective as to what their experience will be, but a lot of the similar symptoms will be there. So it's it, it's very, very common. It's very common. So – Thank you again for sharing that part of your story. EJ, did you want to go ahead and I.
2: Ooh, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I just want to take a breath with you and recognize if you guys could see her, she's beautiful and poised and you have this really strong energy. And I just I don't know. I just want to mirror that back to you for a second, because. I'm going in a completely different direction, but this is what. Yeah, this is what we're. This is what it does. Is you know, I don't know if you picked up on I had a little resistance to this topic. I was trying to get out of it. Remember, Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, he can get somebody who's more specialized. And I do see a lot of women. I I work with a lot of women in my in my practice with postpartum, but I also uh, had struggles and challenges with postpartum. So I wonder if my internal part of me. You know, was resistant to come, and you're just so brave. and I know I know just speaking those words out are going to help a lot of women. And I think your intro was really powerful. You said it's you started by saying it's really common. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important to understand with mental health is a lot of things are really common, but they're not commonly talked about. And we have that that mind blown moment when we hear two people name something, normalize it, define it. Uh, put put a construct around it now it's like oh this is a neighborhood this is real this is a planet this uh, you know this wasn't just me um, because shame will isolate us and I know for my experience so I don't you know I don't know if you want to prompt me on something else but what I what I desperately want to say is yes postpartum statistics are staggering and we we know how high they are and wow, what a miss. I hope so many doctors listen to this. I hope every woman who listens to this sends it to her doctor or her nurse or her mm-hmm. doula or her midwife because you were so brave to fill that form out and be transparent and there was an opportunity to reach you there. And as someone in a helping profession, you know, we do miss stuff sometimes and and having a slow down and focus, that's a good reminder for me in the field. You know, but as your sister in this, as someone who had postpartum as well, that shame is debilitating and it's the scariest part. Um, And I love the language you use for someone who didn't receive treatment. You're very well informed using the words intrusive thoughts. I mean, maybe we could break that down a little bit more because if someone's listening and their ears spiked up for any mom out there. Uh, whether that you have a newborn or you have been in this for a while, uh, we know, uh, well, maybe just to back up, the, the normalcy of statistics are 70, 80% of women, of women are going to experience a form of postpartum, 70, 80. So why, why aren't we preparing for this? A lot of women that I see in the clinical setting, I'll ask them what their readiness plan was for it, and I get blank stares.
0: Yeah. Because there's so much planning that a lot of moms put into having a baby. I mean, if you have absolutely no background or any idea what it takes to feed a baby, to care for a baby, we read the books and we childproof the house and we yeah. do all of the things. But do we think about the mental aspect of what we're doing?
2: Yeah.
0: Your body is going to change physically. Your emotions are also going to change. But keeping in tune with the mental side is also very important.
1: Yes. Yes. I think that's why it was so much better with my second pregnancy, because I educated myself and I knew what to look out for. And thank God it wasn't as bad, but I feel like I would have been more prepared and more able to reach out for help had it been.
2: Yeah. So if, if we have loved ones, friends, if we're in a helping profession and we know expectant mothers or expectant fathers or expectant spouses, we need to be preparing them for what does a common conversation look like for the commonality of postpartum Because these statistics are the reported st- st- stat. So if a reported stat is 70 to 80 percent, your stat went unreported. Think about all the other women not reporting that. So it's higher than that. It's, yeah, it's it has higher. To be
0: higher than what that is. Right. right.
2: We right. do know about the third day within the body, women typically that, that third to fourth day are our, our hormone levels take an intense change, transition. Um, a lot of women are waiting for their, you know, their milk to arrive, their healing if they've been through a traumatic birth, uh, where the birth did not go as their birth plan was. We see higher spikes earlier in those those intense feelings, right? If the birth itself is related to trauma, there might have been sexual trauma that was a part of this birth story. How much stress was the mother under during her pregnancy, right? So it's not about the quality of the woman and being prepared as a mother. It's literally about the exposure of the stress factors that she had and what does that support system look like? Right? Mm-hmm. It's always a scale between self-care and stressors. So if I'm working with a, a mom or an expectant mom, I'm really going to zero in on what are all those stressors around? Are you moving? Do you have money? Do you have food? Do you, you know, we're going to go back to the basics. What does trauma look like? What does trauma from your past look like? Our children uh, are barometers for our own work in life. And our next podcast could be on being a teen mom, because let me just tell you, uh, having a 14-turning 15-year-old, it's triggering all my (laughs) adolescent work, you know. So we have to be compassionate and kind about this work, but it does bring up things that we don't anticipate, right? right?
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody would even think about generational trauma and how that – I mean, if you are struggling with your own – issues, struggles as a as a parent, you know, you can bring those issues on to your children and not even really know that you're you're doing it. I know that's not so much about the postpartum, but just one aspect of kind of that child the child care plan, right. but the self care plan as you're going through the the motions of it, as you're going through everything. I mean, like would you say that was anything Actually let me rephrase this, kind of go back, just because EJ, I don't know what you want to share about your own your own postpartum story. Um, at the time, I think if I remember you were in your graduate program, correct? So that was also another.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share, you know, you know, Angela's paved the way with courage here. So, you know, part of my story is also, I had a job where there's a stigma involved, right? I'm in my master's program finishing up, I'm going to go be this, you know, Big mental health counselor. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm saying. You know, just totally green and rookie, right? But there's that idea that you want to seem composed, and you want you want to seem capable, right? Mm -hmm. We all want to seem capable and purposeful in what we're doing. So during, I had what was considered a high risk pregnancy. Um, It was high risk because during my pregnancy, uh, they found uh, an abnormal cyst, a, a growth that the location and size of it, it was kind of miraculous in a way I joke, my daughter saved my life because it probably would have gone dormant for a long time. And by the time they found it, it could have been stage three or four cancer. Oh, wow. So during my pregnancy, uh, in the very early stages, I was told she probably wouldn't make it. I would have to prepare myself for what they consider a medical abortion. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then I would prepare myself for chemo and radiation and surgery after wow. that. Well, I had an immediate bond with my daughter. And I am, you know, trained in expressive art therapy. And I just kept going to my art journal because the medical professionals are, as we know, like they're people, they're out there. But you have a wise, intuitive woman inside of you. you. You have a compass inside of you. And I really wanted – to connect. So I remember I kept going to the art journal and just asking, okay, what's happening inside my body? What's I wanted to connect with my cells, my spirit, all of it on the page. And I was drawing these weird balls and these weird shapes, and then I'd open up the pregnancy book and if if it was a healthy pregnancy, I wanted to see an image of developmentally what would be happening inside of me. Mhm. Y'all, I have a picture of what I drew and what was in that manual. And it was the same thing. Oh, wow. I was drawing, yeah. drawing healthy embryonic growth inside of me, multiplying. Wow. And so at that moment, I knew I had to hold on to that idea that she was thriving. And I had a dream that it was a she. And I drew this beautiful image. But throughout that time, I had grad school. I was still working full time. Um, I ended up having to take a leave of absence from grad school because I had so many medical appointments at that time. And I really felt like I had to choose the pregnancy over the school, of course. That became my priority. So there was a heightened level of stress there. What I didn't understand that was happening there was already pre-birth trauma, that Mm. at any moment I could lose her. Mm. I also didn't know the future of my health. Or there was the thought that she would survive and I wouldn't. Mm. And what would that mean, bringing a child into the world motherless? And, and wow. so I was wrestling with all these, these things. Um, I was in counseling. My counselor was amazing. And she kept me as centered and grounded and really encouraged me to keep using the art. And I just want to preface and say you don't have to have any art background. You could find a music playlist. You could rip up magazines. You could dance. <laughs> you know, you could go for walks. You have to find something to get the body connected to your healing. And that helped me seeing the image form, but it could be anything for you. It could be whatever works for you. And that helped me go into my appointments and the doctors would say things and I'd say, no, I think I'm actually this far along. And then I ended up being right on my (laughs) birth timeline. So When I did deliver, of course, it didn't go as planned. You know, most of us have all these things. But what I would tell women is have a plan and also have a plan to throw out the plan. You know, the plan helps you shape some sort of lane to stay in to feel grounded. But there are things about your plan you can hold on to no matter what happens. You can hold on to a mindful grounding thought, your loving support system. You can hold on to breath work. You right. know, so no matter what happens, anticipate being thrown into something that you you can't control. It you mm-hmm. know, if there's anything about motherhood that's consistent, it's inconsistency, and you can't control that it. That is right. Right. <laughs> With your three and five year old, you are living this every day, absolutely, <laughs> every, every hour. <laughs> yeah. So I went into my birth not knowing how that would be, and then also best case scenario, I would prepare for surgery six weeks later. So already I was being told, you know, as soon as your milk comes in, pump it and freeze it, pump it and freeze it, because you will be put on this heavy pre-surgery medication and you you need enough milk, you need enough milk. Well, I think the stress message of having to be this like turbo dairy bar, my body was like, nope, not doing it. So my milk came in late. It created an infection, um, which was incredibly painful. I can remember laying on the couch crying with bags of frozen peas on my breasts and just feeling, you know, mm. so much shame that I couldn't feed my baby the way I wanted to. And even the way the medical professionals were saying was best, right? Right. But I luckily called uh, a different doctor after that. And and he was so, believe it or not, he's a, he's a man. And he was so kind. And he said the hospital sent you with formula. Give her some formula. Get some sleep. Let her get some sleep. This doesn't have to be a permanent decision. You can always decide something different tomorrow. That was the best thing he could have said. He chunked down the time for me. He spoke to my panic and my shame. And he was right. I gave her. She was hungry. She, she, she got some sleep. I got some sleep. And then at that point, I decided to surrender for my body and my mental capacity. I needed enough strength and fortitude to prepare for surgery and possible chemo. I ended up having the surgery. In there, also, I should know I moved. I relocated mm-hmm. counties. Wow. So I had to travel back to my surgeons and my specialists in a different county to have the procedures and then travel back to a, a newly unpacked home. Mm-hmm. So if there were boxes to check on my stressors, they were they were there. They were there. They were there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were there. Yes. And one of the you had mentioned proximity to in-laws. Sometimes that can be good, sometimes it can But <laughs> where we moved from, my my mother in law could have walked to my house. And then when we moved to it was too far for her to drive. So you know, I was more isolated. Mm-hmm. Right. So women who are isolated, that that's another big factor. Right. 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 So, you know, just to jump ahead, she's Gonna be 15. She's <laughs> wonderful and driving me up a, a wall every day, but I love her more than anything. And she's healthy. I'm healthy. And the the best case scenario happened. I I had uh, an amazing surgeon, and I didn't end up uh, having to have f- a full chemo and radiation. So I was put on a, a health plan and d- just the best case scenario. However, what that six when you normally go for your six week check checkup, I was going into six week. Surgery. So that postpartum for me really lingered. You know, it really showed up more like three month mark and four Mm -hmm. month mark and five month mark. And those, this is where I really want to define intrusive thoughts. And maybe you can talk more about yours too. But for me, those intrusive thoughts, and if you're listening, it's a thought about possibly harming your baby or harming yourself. And most women that think about harming their baby, it happens. I would say the majority of the time in an accidental scenario, like an accidental feeling like, oh, I could fall down these steps and we could both – I could crack my neck or she could – or he could fall and, you know, we would die together. Um, Maybe while you're driving, you you daze off and think about going off the bridge or into the tree. Now, the majority of women that have these thoughts are not homicidal. They're not – they don't want to harm their baby. Right. The mind is looking for a way out of the pain. And it's looking for a way to protect that baby instinct and, you know, it's that instinct.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's important to bring up because mm-hmm. you would think, why am I having these? Why yeah. are these here? Why are they present? Right. What does this say about me? And you're already dealing with shame. You're already yeah. dealing with that guilt of what is naturally occurring within this process. So that's, yeah. it, you're, you're not having these thoughts because you're a bad person or a bad right. mom.
2: Absolutely. And, 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 and. I'll say one one other thing, and I want you to jump in, but the other part that is concerning, and I want women to hear this, is the majority of women that act out, they act out and harming themselves to protect the baby. And I've seen women end up, you know, anything from hitting their head so hard with hairbrushes, pulling hair out, cutting, right? So we really want to look at that release of pain, not turning inward to the mother because she has so much shame over these thoughts, as opposed to us saying, This is common. Right. This is normal. And that's where we want to get mental health professionals and sometimes even a medication to lift those serotonin levels up mm-hmm. to help aid in the body, to help create normal balances in hormones and chemicals. There is no shame in that.
0: Right. Because they're already all over the place. Yeah. So sometimes it's just about balancing out the chemistry.
1: That's right. Yeah. I had a big internal struggle when it came to actually sharing what those intrusive thoughts were. And I think you describing it in that way kind of has given me a little bit of courage and confidence boost because I did feel such shame for having these thoughts. Um, but my in my particular example, I my baby came down with a cold at at three weeks old. And he would kind of choke on his mucus a little bit. And so I would panic. I would get up. I would check on him. And then I would lay back if he was – he was okay. I would lay back down and I would think, well, would that have been the worst thing if he would have – if he would have not made it? Like I I could – start my life over again. I could, I could just be with my husband and maybe we could take a couple years and, and, and maybe we could try again when we're really ready. Cause clearly I'm not ready right now. And I, I felt so, so, so much shame for having these thoughts and which is why I did not get help. Um, but I, I felt a really strong struggle about coming forth and saying those things today because I do love my son so much, so, so much. And I didn't want him to maybe come across this someday and be like, well, she didn't... Did she really <laughs> say that about me? Did she
2: really yeah. not love me? But I, I not. so
1: very much love
0: him. <laughs> yes, yes.
2: And actually what you're describing is a t- it's attached to love. Like, like the enormity of becoming a mother whatever the circumstances you're bringing life into the world through your life force through your body and all of that fear is attached to the love because if we you know and we see it as I'm disconnected I haven't bonded but actually those are the first steps in bonding is wondering am I enough can I protect this child can I handle this life what you know oh let's just go back and we'll go to the beach and my husband and I will go you know but We're designed to escape from pain. We're primitive beings. Most of us, you know, even people who are like, I love a challenge. And, you know, sometimes I say that. But do I really love a challenge? (laughs) Wouldn't I rather just love a cozy day on the couch and, (laughs) you know, a rainy day and a good book? Like, I would choose that over pain and a challenge. (laughs) So I might say that. But the truth is we are hardwired to move away from hard, from pain. You know, if something hurts us, we want to escape it. So that is also normal, too. So it's 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 not that we can't handle it. It's that the overwhelm of it and the capacity. And you mentioned another important thing, too, is the sleeplessness. Oh, my goodness. You know, in asking for help, I, I can remember certain people saying, oh, I'll bring a casserole or I'll do this. And I would say, oh, no, that's OK. I, you know, we're fine. I've got this. Say yes. Take the casserole. I don't even care if it's lasagna and you're gluten and dairy-free. Take the food, you know? Somebody in the house will eat it or a neighbor. You know, it's but it's an act of receiving. When you are a new mom, you need to position yourself mentally to receive help. And you need to advocate that you need help, right? Right. And historically, I just want to say our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers, they might not understand fully however if you open up that dialogue they might have some of those moments with you where they will normalize it you know in in meaning historical in the diagnosis if it didn't come into play as a diagnosable medical condition in our world until the 50s 50s, 1950s 1950s yeah, 1950s, yeah, yeah You know, and what were we giving We were calling them hysterical, mm-hmm. psychotic. We were right. over drugging them, right. you know, and and we were we were treating it with extremely inappropriate mood stabilizers and psychotic he- heavy pharma. Right.
0: right. 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 That wasn't even really known. I mean, it was so new to the right. system, too, that it was just kind of you know, it wasn't regulated in the same way right. that it is today. And I think it's important that you bring that up because I have mentioned to Angela, you know, since starting this podcast, I've had so many people that have reached out just saying, you know, there was something in the podcast I could relate to X, Y, Z. And I mean, people who I have not spoke with in years, people I don't know at all, but one of the big ones I get a lot for is postpartum. I've had a lot of moms that have reached out and there was a lot of commonality in within your both of your stories as well. One would definitely be the isolation aspect of it. I think that is, and especially like you said, receiving yourself or opening yourself up to receiving the help is extremely important and it's okay. I mean, if we go into surgery, we break our ankle and do we think we're really going to heal on our own physically, mentally, emotionally? No, we're going to need support. We're going to need that network. The second thing, too, because we had mentioned the medication, I I had it several mothers who said that's what they were worried about. That kind of goes to Anja's story, too, with, you know, I don't want to be you – had, you had witnessed it being in the medical field, how that does happen in some cases. But a lot of um, mothers had said, you know, I didn't want to go to counseling because I was afraid I was just going to automatically be put on the meds. And within my experience, I know EJ working in this area, I mean, I'm not licensed, but just with the counselors I have worked with, most counselors will use medication as a last term sort of, or a last resort, if you will. So I would not let that be something that discourages you. I know it is kind of scary, especially if you've never been put on any sort of medication that is dealing with the mind, because I think people are afraid of feeling maybe numb or maybe losing part of who they are. And you need your strength, especially as a new mom, you need to be able to, that's the feelings that we have. So how would you approach, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I think one of my big things I was talking to Angela about too, was there is a difference between a counselor and a psychiatrist. And a lot of times if you do approach a counselor, they might have different methods that they're going to try. If that resort or if that needs to be resorted further, then there's a conversation that you can have, but there's a way to go about it that's healthy and that's supportive, and it does not necessarily mean that you're going to be put into a a facility or –
2: Right. Yeah. So we should. You did a great lead up in that. And just to remind our listeners, it's not 1952. We right. have <laughs> we have neuroscience. We have advanced medications, and we also have so much study, so much more. Uh, you know, best case practices and, and research and studies out there about mindfulness and and help. So yes, medication is a tool. And again, you're putting it in your body. So it's only, you know, the efficacy of that medication is based on the environment of your body. So I'm going to get that mom sleeping. I'm going to get her drinking more water, eating protein. Right. Right. right? I'm going to ask who her supports are. I might even have her bring a friend to a session or have a friend call in and be, you know, I'm going to build a buddy system, Mm -hmm. a village, a tribe Mm -hmm. around her. Mm -hmm. So in, in medication, in these cases, I love the idea of giving people permission to understand it's short term you know if we can get that serotonin up where it's going to be and the dopamine good and the oxytocin where it's supposed to be then guess what the adrenals come down because a new mom what you're describing angela what you were in was you were activating that vagus nerve which was sending an alarm system to your body saying trauma danger warning and if we as new moms, stay in a heightened state of trauma activation. Our body goes into inflammation. We stay in a stress response, which means we're reacting versus responding. And a reaction is how we shake babies or we do hear the baby choking and we don't go get the baby or we harm ourselves or we neglect other children in the home, right? Right. Maybe the toddler's climbing up our leg and the You know, eight-year-olds throwing the chicken nuggets and, you know, Mm -hmm. the teenager. Who knows what's going on with the teenager, right? (laughs) Yeah. So so medication can be critical in the beginning and postpartum to stabilize. I want to get a new mom out of a stress response in her body and remind her body that she doesn't have to be at a level 10 because you just – gestationally had a human being inside of you that you bonded with and cared for and now you have literally released them to the world you're freaking out mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. a part of you right has literally so. been gifted to the world right you are not normal right, right? and you're right. not going to be for a while mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if you're the person who is medication averse, or you're sensitive That's okay. There's also still a lot of holistic options to bring your adrenals down to get you out of stress response, Mm -hmm. you know, and get you out of inflammation. There's a lot of things you can do. What we also don't want to do is normalize over drinking, numbing it out, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, weed. We don't want to see a lot of THC in your body at that point. It actually agitates the stress response. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're combating that now in our county where they're popping up on every corner. Mm -hmm. But because that's common out there but that's not going to be a healthy common choice to treat a mom in stress.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Ange, when you were at your provider and you filled out that questionnaire, what and she didn't notice it and you were hoping she would what were you hoping for her to to do? How did you want her to respond kind of in your in your head?
1: I honestly think I was hoping to be medicated. Mm -hmm. I wanted a magic pill. Mm -hmm. I wanted something that would make me feel better. But I wanted her to make that decision. I didn't want to ask for help. I wanted her to say, here, pick up this pill at the pharmacy. And I, I just wanted to be made better
0: by have by by doing it, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah.
2: And and having her pull you out of that shame and, and just say, I see you struggling and this will immediately help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: Or even if it wasn't a pill, even if she had sent me to a therapist or something, I just I felt like I needed help.
0: And we do look up to people in those roles, you know. I mean, and it is not always um, Something that we should be doing because I mean, whether you're a provider, you're in the helping profession, you know, you, not all of us can read minds, <laughs> but like <laughs> you know, we do kind of just want those those people in those roles to kind of just, just see us, see us for who we are, what our struggles are, and then help me, you know. And so it is important. I, I get where you're coming from with that. I would I would have been the exact same way, yeah.
1: And not saying that there is a magic pill and i think i know a lot more about mental health now to know that there are so many other tools other than medication but at that point in my life i was at such a low place i was like give me anything give, mm-hmm. me, give me anything mm-hmm. to make yeah. me feel better mm-hmm. yeah you know that it it's such
2: a powerful message because it connects me back to my childhood, uh, my older sister, and I have two sisters, I, I, I'm the middle child to do, do with that what you will. <laughs> um, but, you know, my, I really believe that my, my mother struggled with severe postpartum after my younger sister was born. And it affected my entire family structure, you know, because as that went untreated, it turned into long term depression. Mm-hmm. And and probably some anxiety along with that. And my d- dad was very avoidant of that. You know, I love both my parents dearly. My mom has passed. Um, my dad is st- still very much in my life. And we have a, a really open dialogue about this. But, you know, he, it, I think it probably pushed him more into drinking. You know? I'm so grateful today my dad is sober. But as my mom fell more into depression, my dad fell more into de- addiction. And then the addiction grew and then the depression grew. So when I think about, gosh, if someone had given my mom the magic pill and the therapist or the article to read or, or the thing, and my mom was a nurse too. She was a medical professional. You know, and loved women and had daughters. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think she was a very vibrant, artistic woman. And I think she was really good at hiding Mm. it to the outside world. But at home, in the reality of our home, you know, the depression was there. Right. And I think, I, I just think about how many families out there that postpartum untreated progression has impacted the generational health and wellness of their family.
0: Right. And the entire dynamic, the structures, the relationships, there's so much that you could get into with that. And just to know that bringing up a good point of getting it treated. I mean, if you do have these symptoms, if you're having anything that we're talking about, I would never force somebody into receiving the help. But as we've been talking about being open to receiving the help and trying to find that because- you just, you know, it's better to be aware. That's the first step. And then once you are in that mode of thinking, you know, you can help yourself more than you probably think you're capable of doing. So just always keep that in the back of your head. And I know we want to, we had so much we want to talk about. And as we're kind of, you know, in these discussions, I think it's important for us to talk about the the supportive care, the partner care that you might need within the postpartum. So let's break that into I want to ask EJ first, you know, what would you say to um, what would you say to a partner or a spouse or to somebody who might notice some of these symptoms, you know, without them saying that they are experiencing them or what would that look like?
2: I think I would ask them questions about what they anticipate home life to look like after that birth, after the baby comes home. Right. Right. You know, there could be complications. We had mentioned earlier, you know, in NICU, like there could be all of these things that we don't anticipate. But I would ask that partner, who's your support system? Who are you going to call when you can't process this with the mom? Mm-hmm. You know, and also I would ask them questions about what they know postpartum to look like, right? Because great, there's yeah. there's normal hormonal release. You're gonna cry at the public's commercials or the <laughs> in my time it was the cotton, the fabric of your lives. I don't oh, know if yeah. you remember <laughs> every time yeah. they came on dancing in cotton clothes and around the world I was bawling, you know. I'm like why this cotton commercial. But you know, so some of that's just normal release. So mm-hmm. I would I would really want to define normal hormonal release through those first three months. And then I would also say, okay, well, you know your mom better than anyone, if not most people, right? So mm-hmm. you're going to – if you start to see warning signs that concern you, you need you need to not be avoidant. You need to have the courage to ask the questions. How right. can I help you? What do you need? Can I stay home? Should I work from home? Right. You know, and, and start repositioning the home to provide supports around the mom.
0: Right, you know. Right, well, because I think that's a good point too. Is that it's it, because your partner or your spouse would be going through postpartum as a as a supporter, say as a spouse. You know, you it's not saying that you're not doing a good job. It's because I, I know Andy, and I know he's a wonderful guy, and he I know he wasn't not doing what he was supposed to oh, do. Oh, Absolutely, he can't help that this is what you're going through either. So it's it is important to talk about that.
1: And I actually have a question for you on that front is that I know I was very resistant to help. I had so much support. I had my mother-in-law coming over during witching hour and she would say, go upstairs and sleep. And I would lay upstairs and I would just worry about my baby and I wasn't the one taking care of the baby. So You know, is she doing it the right way? And all of these things, like how would you help a mother who is unreceptive to that help?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And that's also very common, right? The control piece. I, I once had a woman in my office say, I didn't allow anyone to hold my baby for six weeks. No one else could even, because that attachment was so strong that she, even though she was having these intrusive thoughts, she thought if she released the baby, if anything happened, it would be on her too. Mm-hmm. So I I think going back though, like, I don't think there is anything different that you could have done. Like I, I really go back to that crossroads at the doctor's office. You filled out the form, you showed up at your appointments, you received the help from your mother-in-law. You know, I think it's breaking stigma. And we're doing that today. Right. I'm getting a little emotional. You telling that story. Hopefully that woman is hearing it today, going, Oh, that's what's going on with me. I don't have to do it all. And again, this is gonna take generations because if just two generations back or one back, you know, if they didn't have the language, they might be telling us to go. My worst thing is stop telling mothers to sleep when the baby sleeps, because you're you just described it. You're vibrating, you feel crazy, you haven't showered, you probably haven't gone to the bathroom you're upset you've run out of the giant mesh underwear, you know, like (laughs) everything hurts. Nothing's where it is. You mentioned body positivity and kindness and everyone will just tell you sleep when the baby sleeps or enjoy every moment. Those things really made me feel a lot worse. So I think knowing your people too, is is important. But we are helping shift that dialogue, thanks to Bradley doing this episode. It's so wonderful. I, I feel so honored to be a part of the discussion. But really to also get the message out to your partners of what that language sounds like. Check on them, you right. know. Have e- those conversations. Yeah, yeah. Even even inserting that language of, today sounded like it was really hard. I, I You must have really struggled. I would have struggled, you know. And Helping take that veil off of super mom, super woman. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm going to this place where uh, in the first season, I tried to do an episode of like men and mental health, and I still have not found a man who's willing to come on and talk about mental health. Not bitter, but um, it's just making me think, you know, men don't like to talk about mental health. They're not as comfortable. I'm not saying every man doesn't, but I'm just saying- For the most part. So I'm just seeing this situation where maybe a husband and a wife are having the conversation and he might feel uncomfortable about it. But I just want to say, you know, before you have a baby, if a man views himself in a role as like a provider, as a supporter, you know, you're going to have that conversation, you know, babies cost money. So what are our finances going to look like when this baby comes? How is that going to shift the dynamic the same dynamic is going to shift in your in your wife, in in her dynamic, this new role. You're both taking on new roles, but she is she's essentially giving up part of herself, I mean her body, her her spirit, in order to bring this gift into the world. So, you know, it, it is important to have those conversations and just say, you know, I am here for you and and whatever I can do, and just Whatever amount of support you can, even if it's difficult, it it has to be done, you know. And and just yeah. be paying attention, being aware of what's going on.
2: Yeah, and you make me think of the the idea that you know we are being pretty traditional gendered today with the conversation. But I right. But I think the statistics there speak for themselves because one thing I notice working with same sex or trans couples or you know however we want to say it, they anticipate some of this hard a little mm. differently mm. where a, a biological mother and a a, a baby or even a, a mother adopting a newborn there right. we put whether it's in our own mental pressure or the mm. societal we have a different expectation of how like you said to bond with the baby mm-hmm. where I believe adoptive parents they they're more prepared they have more literature they have more conversations they also know those first few months are going to be really difficult in a different way. So their resiliency is higher, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Well, as we're kind of rounding it out, I want to give you both just a little chance to give any last snippets or any, you know, anything that's kind of coming to you. There's no right or wrong way, but I just want to give you the the mic one last time.
1: I just want to reiterate the fact of how normal this is and that, you know, the shame piece was so big for me. And I would hate for that to be the reason that somebody else is not getting the help that they need. Um, So just knowing that it's not something you need to feel shame about. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. And, you know, if you know me or have worked with me, uh, I
2: always say, you know, trauma usually happens individually and healing happens in community. And it's true. So get your community around you and go back to the basics or, you know, take care of your basic needs. And if you're a podcast listener, you know, type in postpartum in the search. There are wonderful support groups online now. Mm -hmm. There are Instagram pages. There, you know, there are so many resources out there. There are great counselors. You could go on psychologytoday.com and literally type in postpartum you might even find some online groups there. Uh, but, you know, ask if you are in a faith community, speak to your your clergy, your pastors. A lot of uh, female pastors now are getting trained in the spiritual support of this, you know. So remember, you're not going to heal in isolation. You will only heal in community.
0: Right. Know? Right. Love that. Well, to e j and to Angela, thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for your bravery, your courage, and sharing your stories, your insight, your perspective. We always say as long as we help one person, I know we haven't helped so many people, and that's because of the beauty and the story and the real the realness, the honesty what we're talking about and why it is important. So again, we just, I think we speak in solidarity when all three of us say, you know, you are not alone. You are here with people that will support you, men, women. You're, I mean, your entire network of people will be there. So just take the time, focus on you, look at yourself. This episode was titled take, you know, focusing on mama because it is important. And again, just creating that wonderful bond that you do deserve with your baby, your family, and yourself. So, so it does come. It does. The bond comes, yeah.
2: even if it's not right away. <laughs> it does. Even when you have a teenager. And they're,
0: <laughs> and they're listening to my chemical romance. Yeah. Yep. are <laughs> reliving the 90s grunge. God bless. Right. Well, thank you to each and every listener for tuning in today. Again, this has been an episode of On What Brings You In. My name is Bradley Wank, and I want to thank everybody at the Collab Studios in Clearwater, Florida for all of their help, their insight, and their technological direction. Thank you guys very much. Have a great rest of your night.